So I think uh, the last uh, point that we left off was this one. This is the last point we covered. Can someone confirm that? Soteriology and Christology, right? Yeah. And basically what we were doing here in this section, and this is section 2D, um, what page number on the handout? Page 7 on the handout. Okay, so what we were doing is we were going through an example of why systematic theology matters. And uh, just as by way of reminder, systematic theology, what does that mean? It's just simply pick a topic and, and, uh, and then ask yourself the question, what does all the Bible teach about that given topic? That's all systematic theology is. It's, it's taking a full look at what the entire Bible teaches about certain topics. And so we've gone through um, a number of these and, and uh, just examined a few basic principles uh, from each of these topics. It can go much, much deeper. There are very, very thick books that go into great detail uh, with regards to these topics. But it just helps to show why systematic theology um, and having this understanding uh, at this level helps with regards to counseling. Um, this traces back to that pyramid that we had discussed before, where at the bottom of the pyramid, we have to start with the scriptures. And then beyond that, uh, just above that, we have to have a right interpretation of those scriptures. Um, and then that leads us to a biblical theology, which is really just uh, centered on what a book teaches about a certain topic. And then a systematic theology is, okay, what do all the books of the Bible teach about that topic? And then from there, at the tip of the pyramid, we have what we call our practical theology, which is where biblical counseling comes in. Um, so when we're applying the scriptures into the lives of other people, it just simply comes from um, a right understanding of God's word, just to put it in plain terms. It's a right understanding of God's word that allows us to be able to apply this in other people's lives. Now, I've been asked by someone, um, what, what is my end goal for really these set of materials that I'm presenting to you? Um, well, there's, um, the biblical counseling materials really breaks out into three parts. Um, and, and typically, um, it, it takes um, the course of a year for, for people to study all three. Um, so we're covering the first part, which is going to take us several weeks, uh, uh, multiple months probably. And uh, really, my goal in this first part, um, I'm going through this slowly, but I, I want you to just be able to see as we walk through this slowly, just how complete and powerful the Bible really is. And hopefully, you're, you're getting a sense of that as we've gone through some of these sessions. Because I, I think everyone in this room, as I'm looking around, I think all of you would affirm that, one, the scriptures are perfect, two, that the scriptures are sufficient, and three, that the scriptures are authoritative. All right? I think all of us would say amen to those things, um, and yet it's, it's another thing to say those things, but yet another thing to actually see how sufficient they are for all areas of our life. And so I'm going through this slowly to just kind of help open our eyes a little bit to, to think about all the ways that Scripture really does speak about some of the trials that we go through, some of the struggles that we go through, that, that it is not silent, that, that, the, that the issues that we face today are not too sophisticated for God's Word. In fact, um, if I can put it this way, there is only one person with perfect knowledge, and that is God. And He gave us His Word. Um, so to think that we have outlived the use of Scripture is silly. Um, God's word is universal for all times. And so walking through some of these examples is a, is, is a helpful way for us to just see some examples of how this applies to our life. But also, as we go through this, um, I, I want to help start to maybe deprogram you, if I will, um, deprogram you of the effect that some worldly thinking has had um, upon your minds. And this is true for all of us, okay, because worldly thinking has seeped in in various ways, and sometimes we just don't realize it. And in particular, when we're talking about counseling, this is true with, uh, for instance, psychology. 
um, psychology has become so entrenched in our culture um, that even um, some, some of the most mature Christians I know um, will fall trap into some psychological thinking without realizing it. And when I say psychological thinking, uh, what I mean is, um, is things that psychology teaches that's actually contrary to what the Bible teaches. Things that psychology teaches that is contrary to what the Bible teaches. So as of right now, we're kind of going through these examples of systematic theology, and that's going to lead us um, into the next section, which, which is going to be a comparison of the various counseling methods. Because um, when I talk about psychology, psychology doesn't, I mean, there's no unified method of psychological counseling. There's a lot of different schools of psychological counseling as well, and you'll see that there's a lot of even disagreements to, uh, amongst them. But there are some real fundamental disagreements between what they believe and what the Bible teaches. Um, so the last thing I covered was soteriology and Christology. Um, that's the doctrine of salvation and of Christ. Um, the next one is what we call pneumatology. Pneumatology. Now that's kind of a strange word, but again, that comes from the Greek pneumas, which is the Greek word for spirit. Um, so this is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And just real simply, I think there's only two subpoints here. One is that he is a person. And uh, we actually um, see that in the book of Ephesians. Uh, when I teach the next section of Ephesians, one of the things that Paul is going to write is he's going to say, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Um, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And that's just one of the many examples that the Holy Spirit is not a thing. It's not a force. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is God. He has a will. He can, he can be grieved. Um, you know, so there, there, there's, um, there's a lot of misunderstandings about the Holy Spirit, but we would say that the Holy Spirit is a person. But probably more, um, more, more important for us as counselors is that he is necessary for both the counselor and the counselee. Now, let's stop and think about this for a moment. Why is the Holy Spirit so important to both the counselor and the counselee when it comes to biblical counseling? Any idea? Right. If you believe, you have the Holy Spirit in you, right? Um, but even someone who believes, uh, we must rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit. What, what do we rely upon the Holy Spirit for when we're going through the scriptures? Well, when you're counseling, that the Holy Spirit will guide you to the correct scripture. Sure, yeah. That's an appropriate time. And for the counseling, the Holy Spirit will speak to their heart that they may be receptive to it. Yeah, and I would agree with that. Um, I would also say that um, we rely upon the Holy Spirit for illumination, do we not? Yes. To even understand what the scriptures correctly say. So for the counselor, it's important for the counselor to rely upon the Holy Spirit for illumination of the, for, for illumination of the Holy Bible, you know, of the scriptures. We need, to, we need to understand the scriptures, and that's part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to help us understand the scriptures. And, uh, and, and even as we are confronted with counseling situations, um, we're going to find that scriptures that we're very familiar with um, can actually be applied to situations that we didn't think they could be applied to, uh, that it just never entered our head until we, we came across that situation. So we need the illumination of the Holy Spirit to help guide us to that. Um, but also for the counselee, um, it's very important that the Holy Spirit is working in his or her life. In fact, I'll take this a step further, and I've talked about this before, but biblical counseling does not work if you're sitting with someone who's not a believer. Okay, let me say that again. Biblical counseling does not work if you're counseling someone who's an unbeliever. Now, that's not completely true because you can still give them the gospel. All right? You, that's really what you want to do with a non-believer. You want to present them with the gospel, help them to see their need for Jesus Christ. 
Um, but unless they actually receive Jesus Christ, unless they absolutely put their faith into Jesus Christ and have completely owned the truths of the gospel, um, you can't, you know, you're not going to be able to give um, scriptural counsel and expect them to be to, to submit to that because they don't, they're not going to see the word of God as their authority. They're going to see the word of God as just another spiritual text. Yes. What if you're um, talking to somebody who you know to be a believer yeah. as much as anybody can know, but that person is denying the existence of God in their uh, in their mental state at that point? You just you just got to keep giving them biblical counsel. I mean, if you're if you're convinced that the person is a believer, um, and and for me, I'll just say this for me. If a, if a person um, is denying the existence of God, um, I would normally use that to conclude that the person doesn't know God. Um, but if you're convinced otherwise, which I would say would be a highly exceptional circumstance, I, I think that would be a highly exceptional circumstance. Um, I, I think you just got to keep praying and, um, and keep trying to apply the scriptures to that person's life. But what you have in that situation is someone who is rebelling against the truth of God at that time. And biblical counseling will not, and that person's rebelling against the truth of God, that person is also actively grieving the Holy Spirit and not, uh, not allowing himself to be illuminated by the Holy Spirit to the text. So that, that's, that's a good question because even in a situation that's not that extreme, let, let's say you, you have someone who you trust as a believer, understands the gospel, accepts the gospel, um, but is not accepting the biblical counsel that you give to that person or is really struggling with that biblical counsel. Um, as a biblical counselor, all you can do is present the truth. You, you present the truth. Um, you let them know this is, this is the way God prescribes for us to move forward. And this is going to be a test for you as counselors in terms of just how much you trust God's word. Um, because counselees, and especially those who are rebelling against the truth of God, um, will try to, in their sinful hearts, um, in that time of rebellion, um, they will tempt you to believe their side of the story that that doesn't work for me. That, that yeah, I know that that's what God's word says there, but I must be the exception. Um, I, I know that God's word says that, but my situation is unique. It's different. You know, so it's got to be something else. And, uh, and this is going to be the test for um, us as counselors. Um, how much do you really believe the scriptures? You know, because at, at that time, I'll, I'll tell my counselees, I'm sorry, this, this is what God's word says. And either we believe it or we don't. Um, and so the, you, you can't, you can only, you know, the, the old saying goes, you can only bring the horse to water, right? You can't make that horse drink. Um, so that's going to happen in counseling, um, that, that people are, are going to rebel. And, and I think this happens particularly when you've got issues between individuals, you know, especially couples. You get um, when you're going through couples counseling and, and they're in a dispute. And, and rather than obey God, they, they still want to get their pound of flesh against each other. In other words, they, they, there's been some active dispute and they still want to prove that the other person was wrong. You know, rather than just, just focus on, on how do I glorify God in this situation. Um, so, yeah, you're, you're going to get that. And um, I've, I've um, for instance, I've counseled um, husbands, as an example. I've counseled husbands um, who I felt were being very prideful. And, um, and, and I felt that while, you know, and usually with couples counseling, there's, there's things on both sides that, that they need to work on. But I, sometimes I'm working one-on-one -on -one with the husband and I'm telling him, look, you know, you, you, you need to die to yourself. You, you, you need to, um, you know, stop presenting yourself as being perfect in this situation. 
you know, because because a lot of people will say, oh, I'm doing everything perfect. I'm, you know, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm, I'm totally walking like Christ. It's she that that's not walking like Christ. She's the one that keeps doing this and keeps doing doing that. And and I'll, I'll talk to this person and, and, and he'll say, look, I'm not a doormat. I'm not going to just let her run, run all over me and stuff like that, which, by the way, that kind of language already tells me that there's something wrong with the person's thinking. All right. But, you know, so I'll, I'll try to appeal to that person. Look, you have to focus on Christ. You, you have to focus on loving your wife. You have to focus on, on what you can do to try to make this relationship better. It's not about who's right or wrong in each and every little spat. Um, and, um, and, and oftentimes, some of my harder cases, um, that the, the husbands won't accept that. They'll say, look, I've tried everything you've said. And I'm, I'm looking at myself, no, you haven't. I can tell by the way you're talking, you, you know, because you're not thinking right. You know, but, um, but you'll get that. People say, I'll try everything you said and it doesn't work. Um, no, you haven't tried everything I've said because if you tried everything I said, we wouldn't be talking about this. Um, so you're going you're gonna to get that. And so sometimes it's going to feel repetitive on your part that, that, look, God says you need to love your wife as Christ loves the church. It's, a, it's that simple. You know, God doesn't say, husbands, love your, your wife as Christ loved the church as long as she is submitting to you. It doesn't say, husbands, make sure that you enforce that your wife submits to you. It doesn't say, um, husbands, make sure that, that her respect for you matches what the scriptures say. No, I mean, yeah, there's commandments directly to wives to submit to the husbands. But it's interesting, right after that, whenever the attention shifts back to the husbands, it's love your wife as Christ loved the church. Live with her in an understanding way. You know, and, and for, for wives, when you have husbands that are not walking according to the word, you know, the, the Bible doesn't say submit as long as he is modeling Christ. No, it doesn't say that. It says submit as the church submits to Christ. And, of course, there's always boundaries to that. You, you, the, at the point, the point that you don't submit is when your husband is calling you to sin against God. Um, but other, uh, otherwise, as, as wives, you're to submit. And 1 Peter, um, to look, at me, look with me at 1 Peter 6. I'm sorry, 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3. There's no 1 Peter 6. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. So 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 6, um, this is addressing wives uh, with a husband who is being disobedient to God and quite possibly not a believer. Um, at best, disobedient. At worst, just not a believer. Um, and, and Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. He says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding of hair, wearing gold jewelry, and putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. And then he goes on to talk about how Sarah obeyed Abraham and even called him Lord. And, and when you think about Abraham, Abraham wasn't always perfectly um, trusting in the Lord, right? I mean, on two different occasions, um, he, 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 had, he had Sarah participate in deceiving others into thinking that she was just his sister and not, not his wife. And, uh, and God's judgment was, was threatened upon those people that were tricked each time. 
Um, but the point here is that your submission to your husbands um, for, for wives has nothing to do with whether they are obeying God or not. Um, it's, uh, in fact, um, I've, I've heard many wives say that um, I can submit to my husband as long as I agree with what he's doing. Okay, if you agree with what he's doing, it's not submission. Okay, let's think about what submission means, all right? Submission means that, that you, you do even if you don't agree with, with what it is you're being asked to do. Um, and, and that's not easy. That, that's not easy. But that's, that's between you and the Lord. And for the man, the man will often say, well, she's not submitting to you. I, I don't care if she's not submitting to you. You're not paying attention to the scriptures, what the, what the scriptures say to you. You're to love her as Christ loved the church. You know, so I'm for, for each party, you want, you want them to focus upon what it is that they need to do. And, and, to, and it's not, and this, this, is our, this is our sinful tendency. We often will say, I am more holy without that person. I am more like Christ if it weren't for that person in my life. Um, no, that's, that's not true. That, that person is revealing the rebellion that's already in your heart. You know, it's just, uh, you know, you're living in a, in a fantasy world when you're not around that person. And it, that's, you know, in marriage, those, those people, our spouses, are going to be the people that most reveal where we need to be sanctified the most. Because no one's going to know you as, as much as your spouse knows you. And so there, there's a lot of grace that's, that's needed between um, relationships. But all that is a roundabout way of saying that if you know someone is a believer and they're just not accepting it, you can't force them to accept it. Um, and, uh, and this is something else to consider. I get a lot of people that will call me. Um, it could be the husband or it could be the wife, um, you know, and saying, can you call my husband? Can you call my wife? They're disobeying and this and that. And, um, and, and usually my response is um, have that person call me. And the reason why I do that is because it never works if I just chase that person down and try to correct that person. Um, it, the person needs to want to be counseled, basically. You know, the, the person wants to, has to want to, to be helped. And so that's, and that's, that's even, you know, even in a secular sense, if you were to talk to secular counselors, they'd probably tell you the same thing. I can't help a person unless a person wants to be helped and is willing to be helped. And it takes some humility with that. It takes some humility with that. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, um, it, it, takes, um, it takes some stubbornness on the counselor's part. And when I say stubbornness, stubbornness is not a bad thing if you're stubborn about the right things, right? Um, you you got to be stubborn about the truth. And in this case, we're, we're stubborn about, about God's word. And while I am presenting biblical counseling as the best way to counsel fellow believers, let me just say that biblical counseling is hard work. And, and, and a lot of the times, the people that you're working with, they're, they're not going to respond the way you want them to respond, at least not immediately. And um, they might never get it. You know, I, I think um, I've had many biblical counseling experiences, and there's been some cases where people have responded extremely well. And there are some cases where they did not respond at all. Um, and uh, it, in the church that I came from, I even had a case of a couple that ended up getting excommunicated from the church um, because of their continued uh, disobedience. And, and I, I wasn't the one that excommunicated them, but I, I was working with them, and their continued rebellion um, you know, ended up uh, becoming known to the elders and whatnot. And so that, that was a, a long and, and difficult process. But um, counseling is messy. Um, dealing with uh, people's problems is messy. You know, but um, this is how we show our love for one another is uh, being willing to endure, being willing to, um, you know, to, to, to work with people. And, and the reward of all this um, is first and foremost, we're, we're doing God's work. But um, there's also a reward in, in this when someone is able to be sanctified through it, when someone does see the light uh, of day and, and they do respond to the truth and you see them grow as a result. Um, it is a tremendous, tremendous encouragement. 
And a lot of times um, the, the people that, um, that really respond the best to biblical counseling um, end up becoming great biblical counselors themselves. Um, so that's, that's just something to keep in mind. But it's, it's hard work, and, and people are not always going to respond. But just because they don't respond, it doesn't mean that this isn't the right approach. Right? This is still the truth. This is still the truth. And I was, um, I was talking to, uh, to, to one of you um, about, you know, at the end of the last session, I was talking about feelings and faith, right? Um, you know, we, we want to make sure that our, our feelings match our faith and, and not the other way around, that, that our faith are following our, our feelings. And, and so an example of that is someone that says, well, I feel that God is leading me to do this uh, when, when they're describing something that's not biblical. You know, and, and maybe a great example would be um, um, pursuing a relationship with a non-believer. Oh, I feel God is leading me to this man. He's such a good man, and, and I know he doesn't believe in God, but I, I feel like if I, if I work with him, he's going to be able to, to, to come to God. Um, well, you may feel that way, um, but that's not biblical. You know, and that's an example of where the, the, your feelings, you're, you're letting your faith follow your feelings rather than going to the scriptures and, and recognizing the scriptures tells us, that tells us, you know, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Um, and, uh, and, and from a counseling perspective, I, I, you know, no surprise to you guys that the, the hardest um, relationships to deal with are, are when one is not a believer. Um, there, there's a lot of heartache in a lot of those relationships um, because uh, one person expects the other to act like someone that they're not, essentially. You know, and, um, and so let that be you know, a warning when you're working with people who are considering dating, you know, what they call missional dating, right? You know, you're, you're, you're dating and trying to evangelize the person you're dating, uh, dating at the same time. Um, it just, uh, it, it only in, in like the most extreme circumstances I ever, ever heard that, <clears throat> that working, and it was under very, very extreme circumstances. Um, but for, for the most part, um, you know, it just, it leads to a lot of heartache, and it leads to a lot of difficulty, especially for the one who's actually in Christ and wants to walk in Christ. Um, because when you have disputes with your partner, um, how are you going to be able to reconcile? How are you going to be able to agree on anything if you don't worship the same God? You know, if you don't follow the same same scriptures and he's worshiping the, the God of the world or a God of his own making or, or her making, and you're trying to bring the, the scriptures. Um, so all that to say that, um, that, you know, we have to stick to God's word. It's not always going to be received. People are not always going to respond to it. It's not always going to be deemed successful on the outside. But it's just like what, um, what, what Paul said with regards to evangelism. And uh, let me go to, let me find that, 1 Corinthians 9. First uh, Corinthians nine, and if you go to verse nineteen, First Corinthians uh, nine, verse uh, nineteen. First Corinthians nine, verse nineteen. Paul is actually just talking about evangelism. He, he is talking about what lengths that he goes to to evangelize people. And by the way, this, um, this passage we're about to read, a lot of people have twisted this passage to say that, um, yeah, I can, go to, um, I can go to bars and I can go to places where there's a lot of sinful activity and, and intersperse with them and be like one of them and try to evangelize to them from the inside. That is not what Paul is recommending here. In fact, what Paul is saying, talking about here is actually giving up his freedoms at various points in order to be able to evangelize. He's not talking about taking on additional freedoms. 
Um, verse 19, he says, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all. So that right there um, shows you that, that it's not that he has taken on additional freedoms, but he is willing to actually give up some of his freedoms in order to try to evangelize. I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law through, um, though not being myself under the law so that I might win those who are under the law. Verse 21, to those without the law as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. Now, all these uh, phrases, you can take a while trying to understand exactly what he means. But here's the point at the end of verse 22. He says, I have become all things to all men, all things to all men, so that I may by all means save how many? Some. Some, right? You know, so, I mean, this is biblical counseling to non-believers, which is basically the gospel. And, uh, and Paul, you know, even from here, we see that not everyone's going to respond to the truth. And it's going to be even true for believers. They're not always going to respond the way you want to, which is why we have things like excommunication and, and confronting people in sin and, and those kinds of things. Did you have a question? Okay. Um, so, yeah, just, uh, just stick to it. Stick to it. Um, any questions about pneumatology? So the Holy Spirit is very important. We rely upon the Holy Spirit for illumination for ourselves, but also to do the work in the lives of our counselee. You know, so recognize, you know, you're going to present the truth. And as true as that truth is, that truth is not going to work without the ministry of the Holy Spirit in that person's life. So we are not dependent upon our own cleverness, how we present the truth, how persuasive we are. Um, we rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit to help illumine us, and we rely upon the help Holy Spirit to help change that person that we're dealing with. All right? And so from pneumatology, we move to ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church. Ecclesiology, that's from the Greek word ekklesia. Um, the doctrine of the church, and we've been getting a lot of doctrine about the church just from the book of Ephesians. Ephesians has been rich on the doctrine of the church. And what we see first is that the church is the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. Um, so as I've said repeatedly in my messages, um, a, a Christian outside of the church is foreign to the scriptures. Uh, a Christian who exists outside the church is foreign to the scriptures. The scriptures never addresses anyone who is outside the church. All the letters um, that are written either to churches or even individuals always assume that there is a church structure in place somewhere. And so when I counsel believers or those who claim Christ, some of them are not actively attending church. Some of them might be attending maybe once a month, uh, you know, once every other week, or they have other, um, you know, things that kind of get in the way of their attendance. And one of the things I tell them is that, look, you need to be back in church. Um, you are not fulfilling the role that God has created for you if you are not in the church. And so you're trying to find answers to this problem, but you're already not walking with God by, by not being consistent uh, within the church. You're not placing yourself under the headship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so the doctrine of the church, the church is the body of Christ, Jesus is the head. The body of Christ is the place of worship and sanctification. Um, this, uh, th this wording is a, is a little bit funny because the body of Christ is talking about believers, is not talking about a building, but this uh, wording is almost like talking about a building. But, but you get the picture that the body of Christ, uh, we're, we're meant to congregate together for the purpose of worship and sanctification. We worship the Lord together and, and we are sanctified together um, as, a, as a body. 
You know, we, we serve with one another, we encourage one another, we minister to one another. That's been one of my, one of the strong messages we've seen in Ephesians, especially chapter four, is that, that mutual ministry to one another. Clark? Do you have a, do you have a, a scripture reference that I can jot down on that right there? Um, the body of Christ is... For us coming together as... Yeah, Hebrews... Hebrews 10, is it 1025? I know it's 10 something. Hold on, let's see. Yeah, Hebrews 10:25. I mean, that's it, if you're looking for a specific verse, that's what I would go to. Um, but I think by implication, when you just read through Ephesians, just by implication, um, you know, you are saved into a body. Um, you are to minister to a body. Um, so, I mean, th- this idea of, of, you know, growing as a Christian outside the body is just, is just foreign to, to, the, um, to, to the plan of, of God and Jesus Christ. It's foreign to the reason why Jesus Christ died. Because we see, and we're going to go on when we go to Ephesians chapter 5, and especially those instructions to husbands and wives. It says that husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, for Christ died for the church, right? He died for the church. Remember, the church uh, in, in the Greek, ecclesia, it, it literally means gathering of people. I, he, you know, Jesus Christ chose that word to describe his followers for a very good reason. He used a word that, that had congregation and gathering because the idea would be that his disciples would do exactly that. They would congregate and gather. And you see that example in the book of Acts. I mean, from the very beginning. People are gathering together, they're breaking bread, they're devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles. Um, so you see that in the book of Acts. But, but these letters um, make it very clear that, uh, you know, I mean, Paul is writing to churches in various places. You know, so I mean, you know, if someone existed outside of a church, I, I, I might ask, okay, so what does Ephesians say to you? Well, that's a trick question. It doesn't say anything to you because it, it assumes that you're in a church. And if you're not in a church, it's not even addressing you. In fact, none of the, you know, you can argue that none of the New Testament letters are addressing you because you're not in a church. You know, so you need to be in a church first and foremost. That, that's always the assumption. Okay, any questions about, um, about that? Let me see. And then the next, uh, next point, though limited, the church has God-given authority. Let me explain that. So there is authority within the church. I mean, we, we see that. I mean, if you read some of the letters from Paul to Timothy, um, talking about elders and overseers, right? Um, and, and, of course, we went through Ephesians where it talked about um, prophets and apostles, evangelists, uh, pastors, and, and teachers, um, those who are helping to equip the body for ministry. We see that. So there, there is structure and there is authority within the church. Now, it's limited in this sense. Um, it's limited in that I can't force people in the church to do the right thing. Okay, I'm not, I'm not called to go into your house and check every TV program you're watching, every music station you're listening to, all the songs that you're listening to, what you're reading, how you're spending the day. I, I, you know, that's not, that's not for me to do. You know, what I can do is feed you the truth. What I can do is make myself available to counsel you. What I can do is show you what the Word of God says in your life with regards to your situations. And if I know that you're an active rebellion against the word of God, then I can I can help, um, you know, start the process of excommunication if you continue to um, disobey, you know, an excommunication, Matthew 18. Let's take a look at that for a moment.
Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. And, you know, when um, one of the things that um, our culture says, and especially um, a lot of Christians, a lot of churches say this, um, you know, they, they point to the, that verse that says, uh, judge not lest you be judged, right? So I, I don't want to judge what anyone's doing. I don't want to judge what anyone's thinking. But here's the thing, that scriptures call us to discern. And um, I, would, I would challenge anyone to tell me what the real difference is between judging and discerning. Now, I understand we're not in the place of God in terms of saying someone is condemned, someone is saved. That's, that's, not, that's not our job. But we do discern fruit. We, we do discern actions. We, we do discern when something is either, either uh, you know, um, consistent with or in rebellion to the word of God. And so verse 15, Matthew 18, verse 15, um, Jesus says this, If your brother sins... Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to what? The church. That is the second time Jesus Christ uses the word the church. Um, So while Jesus Christ um, is still living in Old Testament times, he's clearly looking forward to the church age when the church begins and and forms and and congregates. If he refuses to listen to them, tell to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Clark. So I just want to make sure that we're right. So when we're referring to the church over here, we're just referring to that body of people again. To where, yeah, the church. Right, exactly. The church is people. Yeah, the church is people. Right. Yeah, and and, um, and once again, Ephesians tells us the church is the body of Christ. Right. And and yeah. Yeah. This right there, we have the body of Christ. Yeah, it's a place of yeah. I guess it's just a gathering of people, right? And then we go down the next thing and. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Maybe. Um. Maybe change this. The body of Christ is for worship and sanctification. All right. I. I mean, I'm. I'm taking this from materials that. Um. That were already created. And. Uh, yeah. And it's the, the wording maybe, of that's a little maybe funny. Clark could, might make more sense to realize that oftentimes the church met in somebody's home. Right. Not. Not fancy buildings like we have. Right. Um, just whoever home church and still. Today, in many places, it's the home church. Yeah. And, and that would be referred to as the church, right? The yeah, body. it's the body. It's the people. It's the people. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, now, there are some people that, for instance, um, believe that we should just have a bunch of home churches, you know, rather than meet in a place like this, a building like this. Um, the problem with a bunch of home churches is that, okay, who's gifted to teach? You know, who, who are your elders? Who are your deacons, right? You know, where, where's that, that structure? And, and one of the benefits of coming together with a larger group is that we can take advantage of the spiritual gifts given to, given to the people. Um, I, I think they, they first started meeting out of homes really out of necessity. Because if you think about the Jewish mindset, the Jewish mindset was, was gathering together in synagogues. And even before synagogues, it was gathering at the temple, you know, gathering as a group um, at, at the temple. And then it became synagogues because the Jews got dispersed. They were in a lot of different locations, and it wasn't practical for them to travel all the way to Jerusalem for the temple. So they started establishing synagogues where they would gather together, and, and, um, and they would worship God in those synagogues. Um, so house churches um, was really kind of a necessity in those early times because after a while, the Jews did not want Christians um, in their synagogues and, and temples because initially that's what they did. 
you know, initially, if you look at the, the early church, the early church continued meeting at the temple and synagogues. You know, and um, at some point, the, the Jews said, get out. You know, you're, you're proclaiming something that we don't believe in. And, uh, and, and so then they, they started to uh, meet at um, house churches, and especially in Gentile areas, too, you know, where, where those things didn't exist. So does that answer your question? All right. Today, there are many places where people cannot meet in Iraq, you know, especially in restricted countries where it's dangerous. The only place you can meet, and then it still has to be very secreted, you know. I mean, they don't have any other options. Yeah, and in some places, by having a building like in Africa and Nigeria, they make themselves vulnerable for attacks. So they know that there's a church, and that that building and the people in there, they're being targeted, you know, and killed. Yeah, when I was um, underground in a certain country, um, we met in, um, in this, we did meet in a home, and uh, we met actually kind of in this large basement area, and, uh, and believe it or not, they, they fit close to like 70 or 80 people down there. I mean, it was, it was pretty crowded. It was pretty crowded. But, um, but yeah, they, you know, they make that work. And, and uh, obviously, the bigger the place, the, the, the better, but also you need to maintain that, uh, anonymi- you know, that uh, being anonymous and, and not uh, being known. In fact, they can't put any flyers up anywhere, you know, advertising their church services. And, um, and if they have to change locations, and on this particular Sunday, they actually had to change locations because the original location, there was a lot of police activity over something else that had happened. And so police were actively in the area asking people, where are you going? What are you doing? And, and whatnot. So they had to change locations. But then there's a tricky thing. How do you announce that you're changing locations? Right. right? Because because regular public communications are all monitored. So they actually use encrypted communication. They use encrypted communication to be able to communicate with each other where they're going. And it was amazing. On that Sunday that I was there, it was a different location. And, and still, we had close to 100 people show up. Wow. I, I was like, wow, right? Yeah. I mean, um, you know, we um, if we change anything up here in America, all kinds of people get confused. You know, even if you announce it ahead of time, even you pull it, put it in the bulletin, right? Even if you call people up, and say, you know, people will still still get confused. But um, but yeah, the, the, you know, it's a it's a different culture. It's a different um, it's a different atmosphere. And and those uh, those folks, and I tell you this, and I've mentioned this before, but it's worth mentioning again. Um, those kinds of circumstances has a way of making people very serious about their faith. Those circumstances have a way of making people very serious about their faith. It was amazing to me just how much those folks just were hanging on every single word that was being preached. And they wanted to know every single word. And, and, and during the week when I was um, um, teaching at kind of this underground Bible school, I was going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And if I accidentally skipped one word, they knew I skipped it. Go back to that word. You know, go, go, back, to that, go back to that phrase. Go back to that verse. Go back to that sentence. Whatever it may be, explain that to us. Um, and so they, they wanted to know as much as, as much as possible. And here where um, we're not really persecuted for our faith, not yet. It's, you know, we can feel it coming, but we're not really persecuted for our faith right now, just yet. And in this country, it's very easy for faith to be shallow. It's very easy for anyone to say they're a Christian until that time persecution comes. Right. And uh, Jesus Christ, he had the um, parable of the tares, right, uh, where he, you know, he, the parable of the soil, the sower, the soil and the, the, the sower and the soil, you know, where he's, you know, throwing seeds on various types of soil. Right. And uh, in some soil, it grows and multiplies and some soil just burns out. Well, I mean, that that happens. And, 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 you know, he identifies four groups and only one of the four groups ends up being believers. You know, one of them rejects it outright. And then two other groups seem to initially receive it. You know, but they're, you know, they're, they're taken away. They're taken away either by the worries of the world or by persecution or whatnot. So, 
you know, th those are the things that kinds of happen that that happens. And even when you look at the um, book of Hebrews, the setting of Hebrews is that Jews were being persecuted for their faith, and, and well, actually Jewish Christians, I should say, were being persecuted for their Christian faith, and they were tempted to go back to their old Jewish faith. Uh, they were like, oh, I, I don't want to suffer this persecution. I want to go back. And over, you know, the irony of that is that much later Jews would end up getting persecuted as well. But they were tempted to revert back to their, um, their Jewish faith because of persecution. And uh, the author of Hebrews is basically saying, why would you give up something that is superior to go back to something that is inferior? You know, why would you do it? And for the Jews, I mean, you know, the Jews, this is a different situation from us because they, they saw how the Old Testament scriptures pointed to the Messiah. So now that you know who the Messiah is, why would you go back and say there's no Messiah yet? You know, why would you go back and give up on the one that you know is the Messiah? What, to avoid persecution? You know, but that's in our hearts. That's that's what happens when persecution comes. You start to find out who's very who's serious about their faith and, and who isn't. So a, a lot of rabbit trails there. But so ecclesiology, um, I was going back to that third cell point. The church has God given authority, though limited. And I wanted to take you to Matthew 18. We just read through that. And, and really, we have that three step process. If you know someone is in sin, go and show them their fault. Um, if they listen to you, great. If they don't listen to you, you take two or two or three witnesses with you to, to talk to that person. And if they still don't listen, you report it to the church. Um, and uh, then once the church knows about it, and if they still won't repent, um, then what Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. What does that mean? Um, that person is to be treated as a non-believer. Yeah. And, uh, and excommunicated from the church. Now, this is, you know, this is... Um, this, the odd thing to some people about this is that we welcome unbelievers to attend the church. Unbelievers are welcome to attend the church. Um, but then if a, someone who says they're a believer is in active rebellion against God and won't repent, then we tell them not to come to the church. Now, why would we allow unbelievers to come to the church, but then tell a believer not to come to the church? Well, because that believer who's in rebellion can be a bad influence to everyone else. And, and when you start to tolerate sin, then it starts to send the message to others that, okay, this is okay. And it also taints the image to unbelievers, you know, who walk in and say, oh, well, you guys are just doing the same thing that unbelievers are doing outside the church. You know, so what, what do I need this for? Right? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a corrupting influence. It's a corrupting influence. Uh, you know, it's that saying, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? Um, so that this is the reason why we have church discipline. But so there is that kind of authority that that God grants to the church. Um, but it's not um, it's not this kind of militant um, looking over your shoulder, you know, checking every step that you make and every thought that you have and everything that you listen to and whatnot. No, I mean, there's a lot of things that you just have to make a decision on based upon your conscience as informed by Scripture. Um, but uh, but uh, on Sundays, as we gather together and throughout the week, we want to edify each other and, and learn from from God's word. Yes. Um, there's something that um, you mentioned last week, and I really would like some clarification on that. You talked about that there are ministries that are not connected to a particular church. Yeah. So <laughs> we have some of those here in the valley. Yeah. For example, the um, the birthright, no, the birth birth choice, or um, you know, the Ivy Center for Life, yeah, yeah. and we also have things like um, Teen Challenge. They are not connected right. to a particular church, so 
That doesn't mean they're necessarily no. that they're not good ministries no. or anything. No, no, right? So we're, we're talking about parachurch ministries. Yes, yes. Um, we're talking about um, organizations that operate um, independent yes. of a church. And um, the idea of a parachurch ministry, and the word for para in, in the Greek is alongside. It's like, you know, it's an organization that works alongside other churches. Um, so they, they provide um, services that um, a church might not be able to provide themselves, right? Um, now, when I, when I was making the statement that, um, that it needs to be connected to the church, that was specifically for biblical counseling. And, I, and for this reason, I'll tell you for this reason. Um, because if you make a biblical counseling ministry independent of the church, um, you want to be able to hold that person accountable to the things that you're teaching that person, that, that you're counseling that person with. You know, if that person is in sin, you want that person to be able to repent. Um, but the, the thing is, if, for instance, um, I'm counseling someone who's going to a church that doesn't teach what I teach, that, that teaches that, uh, you, you, know, you, can, you know, you can sin and it's okay, um, there, there's nothing wrong with that and, and whatnot. Well, there's no accountability with, with his church, right? Um, so, I mean, the biblical counseling needs to be, I would say, not just connected to a church, but connected to a church that believes that the scriptures are authoritative, sufficient, and perfect. Okay, authoritative, sufficient, and perfect. Because there's a lot of churches that will say they believe that, but in practice they don't. Um, so they, they can say that it's authoritative, and yet they'll say that it's okay to just sin against God. Now, we all, are, we, we all sin. I understand that. That's not to say that we don't sin. Um, but we, we respond in a certain way when we sin. We, we seek to repent. We seek to um, you know, restore that communion with God. We, we seek to grow through that. And um, we, we don't in any way just say that, yeah, you can just live your life however you want. Um, but some, some churches operate that way. And some churches, I just, I just showed you excommunication. The majority of churches don't practice excommunication. They, they just don't. And um, my mentor um, once called another church because uh, someone had left um, our church and went to another church, but that person was, was you know, kind of under church discipline, and there was an issue that, you know, that this person wasn't willing to reconcile with their spouse and, and all that. So the person went to another church to kind of run away from that counseling. And so my pastor contacted that church and said, hey, you know, we got this issue with this, um, this woman. She, she wants to divorce her husband, and there's not biblical grounds and this and that, and, and now she's attending your church. And the response back is, uh, we don't get involved in those matters. And, um, and that's, that's the sad reality. There's, there's a lot of churches that operate that way. And so um, obviously that kind of church can't have biblical counseling or at least can't have a biblical counseling um, ministry that is very effective because you, you need to be able to have that kind of authority uh, from the church. You know, and, and I also, this is the other benefit of um, biblical counseling. Um, as you're counseling that individual, you, you might meet with that person once a week. I mean, that's probably as frequent as, as you'll make it. Um, you, you can make it less frequent than that, but you probably won't want to meet with that person more than once a week. And um, really, that one time you're meeting with that person, that's really just one hour. One hour out of how many hours of the week, right? So you can't expect that one hour to be the magic formula that's going to change that person. So we're going to get to it later, but you want to be able to assign homework, right? You want to be able to, to, to provide prescriptions on what that person needs to do. They need to be walking with the Lord, right? They need to be at church. They, they need to be in service. They need to be in the Word. They need to be in prayer. You know, they need to be meditating upon truths. They need to be applying the truths that you've taught into their life, you know, um, being active and, and engaging in those, uh, those truths. Um, if, they're, if they're at a church uh, that, um, that, that, that is weak in its theology— um, then those things aren't, aren't going aren't to really matter, right? 
And um, and if I tell someone, you know, I want you to be in church service because you need to grow according to the word of God, you know, I want to be able to say to them, okay, what, what did you learn this past Sunday? What, 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 what was preached? How did that apply to your life? You, you know, that, that's part of the exercise of growing in Christ, growing as a Christian, because counseling is not just solving a problem, but it's trying to dis- disciple that person into being a, becoming a useful part of the body of Christ. And um, if they're not being well-fed at their church, then it's, it's difficult to hold them accountable to, to, to real growth. But now if, if they're going, you know, the people that I counsel, I know what they're hearing on Sundays, <laughs> right? Because um, I, I, I know what I'm preaching. You know, and so I, I can refer back to the sermons that I've said, and I said, hey, you know, I, I preached this last Sunday. What did you think about it? You know, because this actually is, is very, you know, complementary to what you're going through. This, this is, I think, very helpful if you understand that passage. And in your case, you know, you're going to this church and you counsel people. You can be able to say, hey, were you there on Sunday? And you know the message. So you can find out if they really know the message and understood the message. You know, um, Brett Hauser is not here tonight, but Brett Hauser and, um, and, and Jeremy, I, you know, their children, they, they require their children to take notes, you know, of the messages. They, they take notes of, of my sermons. I mean, so that, that's a requirement. And they take very good notes. You know, they, they take very good notes and they understand. And the whole point of that, that's part of discipleship. You, you want to train your children to be able to listen to the sermon, to be able to understand the sermon and figure out how it applies in their lives. If that's true for children, how much more is that going to be true for the adults that we counsel, right? They should be doing the same thing. And we want to be able to hold them um, accountable to that. Um, so that's, uh, that, that's going to be important. Yeah. Did, did, did that, does that help? Yeah. Yes, Julie. So um, on people that skip over to another church, have you ever had somebody new come to your church and then you ask them, you know, you find out, oh, yeah, they're believers. Well, they used to go to another church and then ask, well, why aren't you still there? Yeah. Yeah, anytime, anytime a person comes to the church, and let, let's, let's say they want to become members, um, but it could be counseling as well. Um, yeah, the, the question is, okay, you know, why, why did you leave that church? I, you know, I'm, I'm going to be curious. You know, I'm going to want to know. Because in some cases, they might be running away from something. Right. Yeah, and and that, um, that's especially important, like, for instance, when we go through the membership process. Okay, what church were you a part of? Um, is there some issue that you're running away from? And, and, and we'll, you know, and we're talking about this with the deacons, but one of the things that we're considering is, you know, hey, can, can you provide a letter from your church that, that just affirms to us that there was no issues? You know, that you were a church member in good standing and, and there, was no, there was no problems. But yeah, I mean, that, that could work either way, right? Someone could leave this church because they're running away from someone or someone can come to this church because they're running away from, from something. But usually they're going to run to a church that's more lenient and not to a church that's more, you know, doctrinal. So, uh, you know, if, if they know who I am, I don't think they're going to want to run to this church. <laughs> you know, unless, they, they, uh, unless they're, they're trying to run to the truth and they, they want to embrace the truth. You know, so, but, you know, you, you never know. But, um, yeah, you, you know, you want to be able to ask those questions. Well, typically, I mean, I've never heard of that actually being asked on either end when yeah. somebody comes new. Yeah, just, right. Yeah, it, it's, it's, yeah it's, not, it's not a common question. But you, you can see the wisdom behind the question. Right. I mean, it makes right. sense to ask, you know, what happened to your, at, at your other church? Yeah. yeah you know, and, and, and you know what? A lot of people have a lot of legitimate reasons for leaving a church. You know, and I know a lot of you didn't always, you weren't always at Western Avenue. You know, you had another church that you went to and you came and, and you have some very legitimate reasons why you ended up leaving. You know, and, um, and, and those are hard decisions when you take your church seriously. You know, when, when the church you go to, you want that to be your home church. You know, but there's a lot of people that are much more casual about it. Um, so, yeah, good question. Okay, from Ecclesiology. 
eschatology, the doctrine of the end times. Eschatology. Eschatology. The doctrine of the end times. And for eschatology, one of the points here, Christ rules, he has all authority. Christ rules, he has all authority. Let's take a look at Hebrews 1. Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Hebrews 1, 1, the author writes, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, verse 2, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he has made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high Verse four, having becoming much better, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than than they. And he goes on to show that that Jesus Christ is higher than the angels. The, The statements made to Jesus Christ were not made to the angels, but exclusively to Jesus Christ. But but this to say right here in the beginning of Hebrews is that, you know, understanding that God has previously spoken to God's people through many prophets there is a special authority in how he has spoken to us in these last days through Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus Christ, unlike those prophets, he was a prophet, but he has authority over all things. You know, so he he is the ultimate authority. He is the sovereign ruler over all creation. Um, and so we say in eschatology, first of all, that Christ rules, he has all authority, and we know that he is going to return. He is going to return, and he is going to visibly establish that authority here on earth. All right, so he, he rules overall. Second, I would say there is never a situation he can't change if he wills. There is never a situation he can't change if he wills. Now, this is going to be important when people are going through difficult situations. Um, sometimes there is a temptation to think that a situation is outside of God's control. That, 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 that God is not able to change this situation. And, and, and you know what? There are people that teach that. So there was at one time um, something called open theism, process theology. Open theism is this, uh, is this idea that God doesn't totally know the future. Um, process theology is this idea that, is that God is constantly learning as he goes. So he can make some mistakes and, and things that happened that, that, were, that he didn't foresee happening and whatnot. And, um, and what is, why do people do this? They do this because they, they, don't want, they don't like the idea of a God who is sovereign over everything. And so they, they, try to, they try to elevate the free will of man, you know, and, and elevate and, and be able to come up with an easier answer for why there's evil in the world. But in the process, you have a God that, quite honestly, doesn't provide me with a whole lot of comfort, right? You know, so you want to know that God is fully sovereign. You want to know as you read through books like Job or you read through stories like Joseph, right, that even as people were openly rebelling against God, that God was actually using that rebellion to bring about his intended good results. That is ultimate sovereignty. That is ultimate power. And so in a situation that people are in, God can will that situation to change if he wants. So then the question is, well, why isn't he changing it, right? Why isn't he changing? And that's where we lean upon Romans 8.28, 
God causes all things to come together for what? For good. For who? Those who are called. Yeah, those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. You know, I had, um, had a gentleman a few weeks ago come in um, saying that he has a really, really hard time doing his um, Bible reading each day um, because his mind is, is constantly distracted by all the evil in the world. You know, like, you know, stories of, of children being beaten and, and, uh, and killed and, and all the all kinds of travesties that are not even worth mentioning. But, you know, he, he thinks about all the horrific things that are happening around the world. And the question in his mind is, is why is God allowing this to happen? Why is this happening? And, um, and, and he struggles with that so much that he has a difficult time doing his daily Bible readings. And uh, it was amazing. I took him to Romans 8.28. And uh, we read Romans 8.28 together. God causes all things to come together for good. And I say, okay, but who does it come together for good for? And he says, well, it says here to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And then at that point, he shut the Bible and he said to me, Pastor, I got it. And that was it. That's all he needed. He said, I got it. I understand now. You, you know, so it's amazing that, you know, a verse like that can, can actually help turn around the anxieties of evil in the world, you know, and that's why you want to go to God's word to, to be able to counsel the person and not just rely upon your own kind of wisdom, you know, if you will. So there is never a situation that you can't change if he wills. But if we know that God is sovereign and we know that he is causing all things to come together for good, then we can conclude that whatever trials you're in, God is using that for good. We don't know exactly what that good is. But it's just like, you know, you as parents, when you tell your children, just trust me, just trust me, right? Your parents, your, your children want to know why. Why are you making me do this? Why are you making me do that? And at some point you say, look, just trust me. Okay, this is good for you. Just trust me. You know, and sometimes, you know, I, I can see God the Father just looking down upon us and say, why can't you just trust me, right? And so if we trust that God is sovereign over all of our situations, then we have to trust that every situation he is using for an exact purpose. And, um, and not only Romans 8, 28, but 29 says that you've been predetermined to be conformed to the image of his son. Predetermined to be conformed into the image of his son. You know what that means? That, that those circumstances in your life, God is using to make you more like Christ. Those difficult circumstances in your life, God is using to make you more like Christ. And when you rebel against that situation, when you resort to anxiety and anger and frustration and, and this um, kind of victim kind of mentality, you're, you're actually not growing the way God would intend you to grow through that situation. In fact, that situation might be there to help reveal where, where you are weak in faith and where you need to trust in him. You know, and, and it's, it's amazing just how, you know, when the people that I've met in my life um, who have been the greatest influences to me, I mean, people that have been in the faith for, for decades and are such wonderful, godly individuals. And I'm thinking of people who are my mentors, people that have been my instructors at seminary and whatnot, um, all of them, all of them, when I sit down and really talk to them about what they've been through, it is amazing the difficult trials that God has brought them through. And so when you see people who have that kind of character, that, that, that just have that godliness about them, that, that you, you, know, you, you want to be around them, you want to learn from them, you, you're so blessed by everything that they say, you're so blessed by their wisdom of the word. And, and what I'm trying to get at is that that didn't just come with a snap of a finger. That, that came through a lot of, not just study of the word, but a lot, through, a lot of difficult circumstances in their lives. You know, so those circumstances in our lives help make us into becoming more like Christ. 
You know, and so this is the catch-22. Most people will say that they want to be more like Christ, and then at the same time, they want to jump out of every trial that God brings into their life. They don't want any part of any trial that God brings into their life. Well, you say you want to be more like Christ. Do you think it's going to happen just with you sitting at home with no trials in your life? You, you know, if you're, if you're a marathon runner, um, who's going to be better trained? The one who's always running on flat ground or the one who's actually running hills once in a while, right? I mean, who's going to be better trained as a bicycler? The one who's going up and down hills or the one who's always going on flat roads? You know, so the, the, the difficulties that we put ourselves through are what's going to help grow us. And that's how, that's how God operates because we, he knows that in, in our nature, we just won't grow without those experiences, without those trials. And so there's the, the situation he brings. He, he can change it if he wills. That's so that's the affirmation of saying, look, God can change your situation. But that's not really the issue. The issue is why is God putting you in this situation? You, you know, what, what is it that God wants you to do in this situation? How does God want you to respond? You know, and just like Job, when you think about the book of Job, all of his friends kept saying, oh, you must have sinned against God. You must have done this. You must have done that. Oh, for sure, you, you know, God wouldn't be punishing you unless it was for some specific act. And at the end of it all, you know, and Job wanted his day in court. You know, Job is like, okay, I, I want to ask God. I want to find, I, look, I know I'm not perfect, but I need to find out from God, what did I do to deserve all this? And, you know, when God finally opens his mouth, what does he do? He, he establishes his own authority as the creator. He says, okay, I'll, I'll answer your question, but you answer me this first. Where were you when I did all these things? You know, and then Job's like, okay, I got the picture. <laughs> I repent in ashes and dust. And at the end of it all, we have the benefit of seeing that written book. We have the benefit of knowing that the reason why God brought those trials into Job's life is not because of what he did wrong. It's because of what he did right. God wanted to show the faith of Job. And, and, to, and, and to, in, in that cosmic battle with Satan, Satan wanted to show him, look, you take away all those blessings, he will curse you to your face. And that's the way Satan operates. He wants to slander God. You know, he's the man of deceit. He wants to spread lies about God. And God said, okay, Satan, go ahead. Do whatever you want to, want to him, just don't kill him. And let's see what happens. And, and Job, you know what? Um, Job ended up repenting in ashes and dust, but he passed that test because he never did curse God. Even his wife telling him, look, just curse God and die. Get it over with. Be done with the suffering, right? But he, he refused to do that. So eschatology, the third point there, the second coming gives hope for the future. Um, so no matter how bad this situation is, what we look forward to is the future. Um, sometimes the suffering that comes into a person's life never gets lifted. Uh, my um, Alice's uh, mentor, uh, Donna Shannon, some of you remember her. She came and visited uh, during a... You know, that, uh, that, that the first official week here at, uh, at the church when Bill Shannon came and preached. Um, Donna Shannon lives with um, constant pain. Um, in fact, she, she, was, um, she was in emergency care just recently, and she has a lot of issues that the doctors haven't been able to figure out yet. And so we're, we're keeping her in our prayers. Um, but she has been living with constant pain for, for many, many years. And um, by the providence of God, um, uh, he provided her as a mentor to Alice, who is also dealing with ongoing you know, back, neck, and shoulder pain that just won't go away. You know, and, and sometimes um, people have to come to grips with the fact that this is kind of the new normal. Um, but I, I can say that with regards to Donna Shannon, she's one of the most godliest women I know. And I can say with regards to my wife, she is such an amazing blessing to me, and many of you ladies already know that. Mm -hmm. you, you see that just, just in her ministry to each and every one of you. 
Because while she experiences pain every day, she doesn't complain about it. She doesn't talk about it. You know, it's only when it gets really extreme that, that she'll say something to me. You know, so sometimes by the will of God, he's going to keep people under those kinds of situations, but he still has a good purpose in it. And finally, there will be total justice someday, both for the church and the individual. Um, this is important because we tend to really struggle with the fact that there's no justice in this world. I have been wronged. I want justice. I have been wrong. That person should pay for it. I have been wrong. I want that person to admit it. I want that person to ask forgiveness. I want that person to see what they have done wrong to me. That, that's an ideal world. This is not heaven. Um, heaven's in the future. Um, for the time being, we live in a very unjust world. We live in a world in which justice is not going to ever be perfectly administered. And we live in a world that understanding these things, we can still glorify God. Because really our job, um, our call, our, our mission is to share Christ with the world and to help support one another. You know, and we want to be able to encourage people with these kinds of truths. And by the way, I was just thinking about this, you know, earlier this morning when, uh, when I was preaching, I was talking about the importance of speaking God's truth to each other, right? And I used the example of, um, of karma, but I was just thinking of another example because we we're just talking about Romans 8.28. God causes all things to come together for good, specifically for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I hear a lot of people telling others, telling non-believers that God has a wonderful plan for you. God has a wonderful plan for you. Um, I understand why a person would say that as part of evangelism, but God does not have a wonderful plan for them if they do not believe. God's plan for them is going to be judgment. You know, and so that's one of those examples where, you know, providing the gospel, you've got to be clear with the gospel that says, look, there is a consequence for not believing. There is a consequence for not confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Because whether you confess it or not, he's Lord. Whether you want to, you know, and some people take this neutral stance. You know what? I don't want to say anything against him, but I don't want to follow him. I just, I just want to be neutral. There is no neutral. You know, you're either firmly in Jesus or you're against Jesus. You know, and so for people that feel that they want to be neutral, there is no neutral. You're either against him or you're for him. You know, and if you try to stay neutral, you're going to find yourself on the wrong side of judgment. You know, so, the, you know, this, this idea of trying to convince people that God has a wonderful plan for you, well, I wouldn't jump to that just yet until they respond to the gospel. Now, if someone puts their faith in Christ, then I can say, yeah, God does have a wonderful plan for you. Now, that wonderful plan, gotta, you, you know, you've got to make sure they understand that. It's, it's that God is going to use you for his good purposes. But for some people, it may, might be hard. You know, God, you know, Jesus Christ, he didn't promise an easy life, did he? I mean, it's, it's possible that you may experience wealth in this world. It's possible that you may prosper in some way in this world. It's possible that you may be very successful in business or whatever that you do. Um, but that's not a promise. What is a promise is that the world is going to hate you. You know, because the world first hated Christ. You know, so we want to keep those things in mind. So that, I think that's the last example of the systematic theology. We'll go ahead and stop there. We'll continue with uh, talking about some of the problems with other Christian counseling books and approaches next time. Any uh, questions? Any other questions at this time? Okay, let's go ahead and close in prayer.